I usually devote this little space to telling a story or a lesson from my career, but today I'd like to speak seriously. The episode you're about to hear features Ivan Maisel, my longtime colleague and a man whose 21-year-old son Max took his own life in 2015. We've all gone through a lot these past few years, and this thing we call existence can be excruciatingly hard. And if you're feeling particularly down or helpless, you just feel like you have nowhere to turn, I urge you to consider calling the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. Thank you. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Ivan Maisel, the longtime college football writer and author of the gripping, heartbreaking, wonderful new book, I Keep Trying to Catch His Eye, a memoir of loss, grief, and love. This is episode number 231. Let's sing some yang. All right, Ivan. Thank you so much. First of all, it's, it is interesting. There are people in this business who I've known for a million years but I don't know how many times we've actually been in the same room. You know, like we've had fairly parallel existences. We worked for the same place. Have we been in the same room? Uh, yeah, I think maybe at a Christmas party or, you know, one of your foray, one of our infrequent forays into the SI office in the, in the 90s. Yeah. On my second go around there. Uh, but no, uh, it's been a mutual admiration society from afar. How do you know I admire you? See, that was <laughs> I a, didn't. I was just taking <laughs> a leap. <laughs> it's interesting. You just did. You just did Good Morning America, and now yep. you're doing this Rinky Ding podcast. And usually, when we do things like this, we have a book come out. You've had other books come out. I've had books come out, and you do the thing where you go on, and they say congratulations on the book, and you say thank you so much. And they tell you it's really a touching blah, blah, blah. And here's where you buy it and blah, blah, blah. I finished your book last night because I didn't, you were supposed to be on a week ago and I didn't want to be the asshole for a subject like this, who has you on and bullshits his way through the book. Like I just didn't, yeah. you're talking about the loss of your son. So it's not promoting a book about the giants or a book about SEC football. Like you were talking about the loss of your son. Yep. And I wonder as you go through this, if you're even able to find joy in the process of what is normally such a joyful experience? That's a great question. And it, there is a bit of a dichotomy there. I kind of, and, and I talk about it a little bit in the book, you know, that I feel I am a better, more perceptive, more empathetic writer after Max died. And, and to think that, you know, in a, there's a way to look at that to where I'm capitalizing on his death and it's horrifying to think about, but look, you know, you, you have a choice, even with something as devastating as this, you can curl up into a ball or you can keep going and bring the grief with you. And I just had this sense from the start that if I curled up into a ball, which I certainly wanted to do, then I'm missing even more. You know, uh, I, we, Jeff, are two weeks after Max's body 
surfaced in Lake Ontario. There's no other way to say it, uh, which was eight weeks after he disappeared. Uh, Our nephew got married in Mobile. And, you know, I had to decide, you know, are we not going to, you know, we certainly weren't in any joyful mood, but are we going to deny ourselves joy uh, by not going and, and then cheating them by, you know, the family, not all of the family being there. So we, the four of us went and, you know, I, I had some fun, but uh, I kind of made myself, you, you have to keep going. You, you pick up your grief and you bring it with you and you keep going. You wrote a lot about, and I found that, so I found really interesting. Like my wife and I lived in New York city on nine 11 and after nine 11, I went to every, every little memorial, every little thing nearby. I, I had to be a part of it. Like I had to, and my wife was the exact opposite. She yeah. was the exact opposite. I don't want anything to do with this. I just want to stay in my apartment and watch reality TV because I can't deal with this. And you write a lot about sort of the grieving process that you and your wife went through and how you had completely different ways to grieve in writing a book was your wife this is great. You should do this. I'm all in on this. Or is she like, why the hell are you writing a book? Please don't do this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a great question. Meg, uh, she knows from having been around me for 40 years that that's, this is how I communicate. You know, this is how I best communicate is with my fingers on top of the keyboard and uh, to her eternal credit and to our daughters as well. They let me, do it, you know, all with the understanding that this was my story. This was not their story. And when I finished, I handed each of them, you know, the, the well handed, I mean, I emailed each of them the manuscript and said, all right, you know, tell me what you think. If there's anything you object to, I'll take it out. You know, I need, you know, plus, you know, edit, you know, just your ear and your eye. And Meg, you know, I mean, there was a couple of things in there that pertained to her. She didn't like, and, and, you know, for a good reason, I got them wrong. You know, I misinterpreted a couple of things. And so I took them out. I said, you know, and I said, look, I'll take it out. I'll rework it. Uh, If you don't like that, then I'll send them their money back. You know, it's just not that important. You know, you you are the priority. And and that's kind of how we got through the whole thing. You know, you do what you need to do and, and I'm cool with it and I'll do what I need to do. Yeah. When I was reading it, I kept thinking one thing that's really sort of cool about this cool is a way too loose of a word is that um, like a hundred years from now, someone in a dusty library somewhere is going to be reading about your son. That's the thing I love most about books like this. And in particular, this book is like someone's going to be reading about this kid, Max, who died a hundred years ago. And it kind of gives some permanence. Oh, and yeah. I don't know if that's why you wrote it or what your motivation was, but that really, that grabbed me from the beginning. Is that well, grabbing me now? I, you know, I think I wrote it because it was the best way for me to sort of complete processing the event, uh, his death. Uh, I didn't write it out of therapy. I didn't write it out of catharsis. I think I had to get all that done before I could write. Uh, and I also didn't want him to be defined by how he died. And, and I thought, I was such a troglodyte pertaining to grief and to people who are grieving before it happened to me that I I just feel compelled to say, Hey, this is, you know, let me take you through what happened to me and it may help you 
when you it's your turn because you know look if you live long enough you're going to deal with grief i feel like it's always someone else until it happens to us it's always like wow your life is so blessed your life is so blessed you look at ivan oh my god you have a great wife and you have three kids your life is so blessed and you probably went through the same motions that everyone went through with you where you knew someone who someone died and you write i'm so sorry and they say thank you and you say okay and you move on to the next Check that box. How does it sort of change you and the way you view these things that they happen and the human reaction to them happening? I have a, uh, a much better sense of control what you can control. Uh, I, I don't sweat a lot of stuff that I, that I used to sweat. And I have a complete, you know, bottled up, bordering on panic feeling that there's nothing in the universe that could prevent this or some other calamity from happening again to the people I love. You know, it, it, it may not be mental illness, it, you know, but, you know, we're all a car accident away. We're all a lightning strike or whatever. And you can't live your life that way. You can't walk around waiting for lightning to strike uh, unless you buy lottery tickets, you know, but you, you, you can't, you know, I, I just feel like, there's, you know, I know there's nothing that can prevent this from happening again. There's nothing I can do, you know? And so you just sort of accept, I guess it sort of leads back to, you know, a Buddhist sense of acceptance and, you know, just trying to do the best you can. Again, like we both written books where it's like, and then against Auburn, so-and-so, so-and-so, <laughs> you know, like those books, they're torturous in and of themselves to sit down and write a book about your son, it's so foreign to me. Like, what is the first, okay, I have a book deal to write this book. Now, what the hell am I supposed to do? Uh, it's very funny. I wrote a proposal and, and, and the genesis of the book, you know, I had kind of was getting to the point where five years had passed and I had enough perspective and I had my feet under me again that if I was going to write it, I needed to do it. And, you know, a college friend who lives in Chicago, Meg and I, my wife, Meg and I had lunch with her at the beginning of last year. And she almost came over the table at me, you know, and said, when are you going to write about Max? And I was like, oh, okay, all right. And that sort of, that was the foot in my ass to, to make me uh, be proactive. And then the pandemic showed up and I had more time, you know, so the universe helped me there. And, but the funny thing, Jeff, is I wrote a proposal and I sent it to my agent. And she she calls me back. God bless her. Her name is Nina Madonia. And she said, uh, you know, this is beautifully written, but you're writing it like you, you're writing about somebody else. And I know that's what you've done your whole career, but there's not enough of you in this. And, and she was dead on, you know, and I kind of went, oh, she said, this book needs to be about you and Max, not just about Max. And it just, it's like, you know, the, the scales fell from my eyes and, and that was on a Thursday. And by Monday I had rewritten the entire, it didn't take a lot. It was like, instead of standing in front of the camera here, I took three steps over and looked at it from there, rewrote the proposal over the weekend. And then we were off to the races. Now that's interesting because you and I come up with very in similar journalism backgrounds where you are not the story is drilled into your head 17,000 right. times a week. Is it weird right. to write a story about your son, but your, your agent is saying, really, it's about you and your son. Well, she, yes. And, and 
the father-son relationship is a central part of the story. And, and I hadn't really thought about it in those terms. I was so focused on him. Uh, you know, and that you're right. I mean, we are of a generation that we were still taught not to be part of the story. I think digital media, inevitably, you, you're, there's much more of a, your sensibility in what you write in addition to doing things like this. You know, it's a, it's a much grayer area than the old AP style that, you know, I, I learned in, back in the, dark, in the Stone Age. How do you actually write the book? Like, are you, is it just every day I'm going to sit on my laptop and I'm going to write for three hours and I'm just going to put all my feelings on the page? Well, first of all, you know, the way I grieved was by opening this laptop and just vomiting into it, you know, and, and it was every morning for the first few weeks. And then it was a few mornings a week and over the course of 18 months until I had sort of gotten all that out. So I had a template of what I was going through in the first 18 months after Max died. And, and some of it was diary, but some of it was emotion. Some of it was sense and feeling. And, and that served as a foundation for the proposal. It, but then it was like the universe, the universe delivered, Jeff. I mean, I, you know, I, I wrote, I wrote a proposal and, and I don't know how you write books. You write way more than I do, but I kept adding up my word count and going, am I there yet? Am I there yet? You know? And, uh, uh, but think, I would just get these thoughts and, oh, I need to, I need to deal with that. Or, you know, I should discuss that. Or, uh, you know, one of the girls would bring up some memory or Meg would say something or, you know, or I would, ESPN would call me and tell me you're done. You know, I mean, that, that everything sort of just contributed to get me to the finish line. Is it satisfying writing when you're writing about a subject like this? It's satisfying in the sense that, you know, I took on the task and completed it. I, I, that's not what you're asking. I mean, it, I, I think it, my soul is satisfied. I didn't want Max to be defined by how he died. Uh, I wanted to define how he lived. I think there is a stigma, obviously, with mental illness that I certainly have learned uh, is, well, I kind of, it's changed the whole, this whole event has changed my feeling about stigma in general. Uh, basically, you know, who cares, you know, and the decision that we made in the first few days after Max disappeared as to what we were going to make public, you know, pretty early on, Jeff, we decided we didn't really give a shit what anybody thought, you know, what difference did it make? Because at every juncture, we had the option. Do we say this was mental illness? Do we say it was suicide? Because, you know, there was no note. And for eight weeks, there was no body. And, and, and honestly, we don't know what happened. He could have walked out there, changed his mind, turned around to leave and slipped and hit his head. You know, I mean, who knows? And my point is, what difference does it make? You know, he's dead and he's gone. And, and that's the central event is the fact that we no longer have him. So in those first few days, you know, you have it takes – every ounce of strength you have to put one foot in front of the other. And now all of a sudden I got to remember who's got top secret clearance. You know, what, what are we telling them? Oh, does he know? Or, you know, you know, and, and it's like, what difference does it make? You know, so, you know, that, that, that was kind of an easy decision to make. Is it hard when you're um, <laughs> like you work in a field where it's like, we now turn Ivan, who's going to tell us about the Iowa Nebraska game. And, 
you make sure your clothes are right and you make sure your hair is right and you want to be delivering it well or people turn to you for information and you're giving them very precise bits of information about a football game, about a football player. And now you have decided, I'm going to tell you warts and all about my son and I'm going to tell you warts and all about myself and my feelings toward everything that happened. And I'm not going to, there's not going to be no glean on this. There's not going to be any shine on this. I'm just going to fucking tell you what happened and this awfulness in my life. Is it weird after all we've been deliverers of information in a pretty packaged and clean way to turn that around and be like, I'm just going to throw all this shit at you. And if you can't deal with it, that is really your problem, not mine. No, I mean, to me, that's what ostensibly I would like to do with, with whomever I'm profiling, you know, or whatever I'm talking about. You want to give people the full story. Yeah. And I, and I felt as a journalist, almost a, a compulsion to do that. You know, the, the one thing that really pissed me off in, in the coverage of Max's disappearance was uh, our local paper ran a story the first week and said I could not be reached for, or either I refused to comment or I could not be reached to comment. And what happened was it was a young kid and he just panicked. You know, he, he didn't want to try to talk to me because he was scared. And I totally understand at that age and, and, and given this subject, you know, the, the, but the last thing that I'm going to do is no comment somebody, you know? Uh, so, you know, that was, uh, I, I just felt like tell the story and tell it fully and completely. And, you know, it, it will do everyone some good. As I was saying, I can picture, 23 year old reporter first year out of, you know, whatever. <laughs> yes. Uh, Mr. Click, uh, yeah. click. He was yeah. not there to comment. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I don't think he let it ring, but, uh, and I certainly remember feeling that way. Look, I, you know, there, there are plenty of stories that I sidestepped this deep of an emotion because I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to go there. And, and now I had this story and I, I didn't have a choice. I was there. You took a passage, this is page 100. Your book, by the way, which I have mercilessly marked up with pen, but I hope that's okay. It's only the Valley version. You wrote on your laptop in the days after memorial service, I spend most of the day wondering if I would be this depressed forever. It is awful. There's so many facets to the awfulness, the how unhappy he was awful, the how much pain he must have been in awful, that we didn't know awful, the built-in guilt that comes with the last one and the entirety of the woulda, coulda, shoulda awful. It does no good, and yet it is difficult to resist. Meg focuses on so many things. I think about the last month when I realized he had been an even less communicative than normal, and I did not reach out. I was wrapped in my own petty, stupid, they are so embarrassing now issues, and he had stayed behind his walls for his five weeks here. I didn't sound the alarm. I didn't grab him and shake him and say, hey, what is wrong? We can help. Two weeks ago, I think, and I don't remember if I wrote this or not, but I drove down the street, repeating louder and louder, we would have done anything until I shouted it and then my voice cracked and I said it twice more in an emotional, exhausted rasp. We didn't know the we may never know awful. The question he left, it's freaking heartbreaking. I know it's not, yeah. even, I feel bad even reading that in a way to you because I mean, no. I know it's too. Um, how are you able to sort of get past the what could I have done? What didn't I do? I could have done something. I know I could have done something. No, you couldn't do anything. Yes, I could. No, you couldn't. Yeah. Do you get past that? I, I got past it. Uh, I think the, for one thing, 
I had a, uh, a woman I grew up with uh, who I discuss in the book, who is name is Robin Gerwich, and she is a uh, psychologist on the faculty at Duke who deals with trauma and children. And I hadn't talked to Robin in 30 years. And the week that Max disappeared, she called me and said, and, you know, we picked up the phone like we were teenagers again. And she said, there is nothing, nothing, nothing you could have done to stop this. You are thinking about this act rationally. Max was not thinking about it rationally. Max was in a place of irrationality. And that helped me a lot. You know, it was sort of that was one get out of jail free card. Uh, the other is that, you know, look, parenting, you screw up, you know, I mean, if you just do, we, you know, all of us, it's sort of, you're learning on the job and, you know, the, the, the crushing part of this is that in any relationship you have, but especially with your children, you, you screw up and you go on to the next thing. And in this case, we don't have a next thing to go on to. Uh, but I was doing the best I could late in Max's life. Uh, he and Meg went to dinner and this is in the book. And, you know, and he told her, I know you and dad accept me for who I am. And that was as close to, I love you as Max ever got, you know, he, he was, uh, he was, uh, he just had trouble. He was very shy and he had trouble communicating. Some of it was being somewhere on the spectrum. It was never diagnosed with any specificity, and some of it, he was just shy and, and, and clearly depressed. And, and so uh, that, but ha knowing he said that, Jeff, that, that also was sort of a get out of jail free card for me. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who has come home to visit from college. Gotta say, you've really changed. Oh, wretched paternal figure. That was mean to say. I have noticed a precipitous shift in your behavioral mannerism. What? In the landscape of erudition, which I now consider to be my natural habitat, thou stricketh me as rather elementary. Seriously, I just wanted to go back to the old days when high school Casey would rave about Royal Retros and buying throwback jerseys at RoyalRetros.com. In my academic pursuits, I have found that corporation, RoyalRetros.com, which, of course, utilize the information superhighway to an Einsteinian perfection, offers linens of the finest quality. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Mind your language, spore-like Luddite. I found it um, actually endearing, your efforts to have your son care about sports. Because uh, <laughs> I've gone through the same thing. I have two kids. And even though I'm sitting in a room with a Eli Manning fathead on a wall, my son has literally zero interest in watching sports. My daughter has no interest in watching sports. And it's funny. It is funny the things we try to do to get our kids to be interested in something. What I found really endearing is you would take your son to Nets games, and yes. it seems like the drives to the drive to Nets games was almost served as a bonding time as much as literally sitting and watching some crappy Net teams play basketball. We did, and you know he got into the Nets because he was a, as most kids are, most boys anyway. He was a Lego freak, and you know the NBA came out with a Lego set, and I like I wanted to go you know, hug David Stern for who or whoever in that office signed that deal. You know, he, he came down one night and said, uh, do you know who Kevin Garnett and Kobe Bryant are? And, you know, and I, you know, stifled my giggle and, and I said, yeah. 
he said, well, there's an NBA Lego set, you know, and boom, we were gone to Toys R Us, you know, in, in about, you know, three seconds. Uh, so uh, Jason Kidd was in the set and I said, do you want to go see Jason Kidd play? And we went and, and, you know, you're right. Uh, and he later wrote me a note in which he, you know, later in his life saying how much he enjoyed those drives and that time together when it was just the two of us. And, you know, one of the regrets I have that has been more difficult to forgive myself for is, is in my compulsion to create a career and, and climb that ladder and get from to the next rung is I didn't make enough time for him or for the girls, you know, and to have that letter, which I read when he gave me and went, Oh, that's nice. And shoved it in my desk. You know, and then to find that letter last year when I was writing the book was just crushing, you know, in, in the sense of he was telling you he wanted to spend more time with you. And, you know, you were too fucking busy, you know, going to Tuscaloosa or Eugene or wherever it was you were going. You know, and that's but that, you know, that's also how the American male of our generation was built. And, and I just plead guilty. I sort of feel like in your defense, like it was your like this was your job. Like you weren't going to Tuscaloosa just to have a good time and drink with whoever. Like you were actually <laughs> well, that's working. True. Yeah, no, I, I did, am I wrong? Yeah. No, you know, you're right. And I did quit covering golf right before our oldest began high school because I finally figured out, you know, if I cover a golf tournament, it's a week. And if I go to a football game, it's a weekend. You know, I, I just remember the look on my editor's face when I he said, you don't want to go to the Masters anymore? I said, well... You know, I said, well, yeah, but, you know, I, 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 I got to give up the beat. Yeah. I was going back through old messages. And after your son passed, I wrote you like a quick, oh, I'm really, I'm so sorry, blah, blah, blah. And I'm sure you got literally 8 million. I'm so sorry, um, blah, blah, blah. All it, nice. Yeah, of course. Right. Of course. And I, I do wonder though, like, it doesn't really mean that much. Like me saying to you, I'm sorry. And I was, you know, obviously you're genuinely sorry, but it's easy for me to write you two seconds. I'm sorry. Is there a right way to help people or talk to people or share something with people when they have gone through this level of loss? Did you find that there were ways that were more comforting? Did you find that there were ways that were disturbing? You know, is, it, is there a way? Well, sure. I mean, you know, American society has a troubled relationship with grief in general. Uh, we're scared of death. Uh, scared of people who are grieving and it's really a shame because if you live long enough in your life you're going to experience grief you know i i, I mean my father died 15 years ago and i i didn't handle that well but i, I didn't you know he was 81 and, and he was sick and it was his you know it was time well what do you mean what do you mean uh, you didn't handle well like it was hard on you or emotionally? uh i didn't handle it well and that i just kind of i stiff-armed it you know he when he was and I go through that in the book, you know, when he was dying, I didn't, I would, I, I just sort of pretended he was going to get better. He was going to get better. And, 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 you know, Meg said to me afterward, I, I, I don't know where, why you thought he was going to get better. You know, why you thought there was a chance. And it was basically because I didn't want to confront the fact that he was dying. So I was as bad at it as anyone, you know? So you know, what I learned is that the grieving person is thinking about, the the one they lost 24 seven 
So you don't need to worry about bringing him or her up to that person. You know, I mean, people would say, well, I didn't want to bring him up, you know, and I'd give them a big smile to know I would let them know I was just being a smart ass. And I'd say, well, good, you know, because if you hadn't have brought him up, I wouldn't have been thinking about him. You know? And you, we want to talk about the people we lose because, you know, just as we were talking about our interactions with our kids, you know, we continue to have interactions with our, with our girls. And, and if you screw something up, well, you, you get them on the next time and, and the next time you do better, but we don't have that with Max anymore. All we have are the memories that, that we can dredge up and the ones that people bring to us. And those are a gift. So of course we want to talk about Max. Uh, you know, the other thing I would say is, and, th- and I'm stealing this from, from option B from, you know, Cheryl Sandberg and Adam Grant's book. And, and Adam was, really nice to do a blurb for this book uh, is you know, don't say, let me know what I can do. You know, I'm trying to get out of bed in the morning and now I got to make, be an assignment coordinator. You know, now I got to be an editor and dole out jobs. Just come over and rake my leaves, you know, bring me dinner. I'm at the grocery store. What do you need? You know, come over and listen to me. You know, and it's hard. It's hard to do, you know, because it's when you're on that side of the divide, it's hard to open yourself up to that amount of pain. But we had friends who did it and we're eternally grateful to them. Is this your way of telling me that you want me to come to your house and rake your leaves right now? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, that was such an awful winter. Yeah. And some really close friends of ours that live about four houses up. Uh, I opened the door one. I mean, I opened the window one morning cause I heard a noise. I looked down and, and it was my friend and his grown up son and they were shoveling my driveway, Wow, which was so touching. And I, I opened the window and this is the kind of relationship I have with them. You know, I just opened the window and stuck my hat and said, get off my fucking property. You know, and they looked at me and I started laughing and they started laughing. And, it, you know, it was just a great release. And, and I walked down and got a shovel and I went out there and, and shoveled with them. And, you know, that 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 kind of, you know, that that is a real expression of love to do something like that. Well, there's a moment in the book where I, I just um, I just found it so joyful is it's at the memorial service and you look up and like Desmond Howard is there. And a bunch of, and I just thought there's something about that. Like people are just showing up when they're needed and you look up and there's Desmond Howard, you know, it's just kind of funny. I don't, I mean, Desmond and I are, you know, in that classic big company, we're hallway friends. You know, I didn't have a relationship with Des, you know, much past how's it going, but that, you know, we had been in a little anteroom of, of our temple and we file out to go sit up front and there were nearly a thousand people in there. And I was gobsmacked and the first face I saw, because all the ESPN people kind of sat right in the middle where we were coming out was Des. And, and honestly, Jeff, you know, there's so many things going on and, and your head is in so many places. When I sat down to write the book, I emailed everybody that I mentioned that was there, you know, just to say, I have this memory that you came to the service, but I don't really trust it did you come, you know, and, and, you know, and, and 
I mean, Matt Millen and his wife drove up from Pennsylvania and Trevor Maddox drove from Nashville. I mean, it just the, the, the expression and they're just work acquaintances. You know, the, the expressions of feeling were just off the charts. So it really was so touching. Does going through this change your um, does it change the way you view or think about your own mortality? Yeah, you know, I, I think I, I do think about my mortality more and only, only in the sense that I've now been exposed to mortality in a very, you know, awful way. I, I, I can't, you know, I don't know what sense of that I would have if Max hadn't died. You know, I do know that I have a sense of my mortality now. Uh, I don't expect, you know, I'm going anywhere anytime soon. My mother is still alive. She'll be 94 in January. So, and, wow. and yeah. And, you know, knock on wood. Um, so, but yeah, you know, the way it, the way it comes to me and I don't know about you, but I will read an obit of somebody who is, you know, you know, 85 or, you know, just pick an age and then I'll do the math and think, so they were my age in 1998. Oh shit. That was just the other day. You know? So, you know, you, you have this sense of, of, uh, you know, you're, you're on the other side of the 50 yard line. If I, you know, I knew I'd make a really bad college football metaphor at some point in this. Yeah. So we were in the car the other day and sticks by lady came on. Right. And, um, it was on, my wife has a free subscription for a month for satellite radio. So it says sticks lady 1974 is the year that came out. And I said to my wife, I said, us listening to this song is the equivalent of the members of Sticks in 1974 listening to a song from 1928. I don't know if that's a sports writer way of thinking, but I'm always like the years, the year, the equivalent of that. Absolutely. Yeah, is it anything? No, I say to my kids all the time, get your own music. You know, I mean, yeah, because it's the way I think about it is it's like we would go into a high school dance and they'd put Glenn Miller on. You know, you know and time does not pass more slowly now. It, it just goes faster. I put multiple stars next to this passage. And it actually kind of gave me some happiness, which is you wrote, um, this is in chapter 10, a better person. You wrote, when Red Smith got through grinding, he produced copy worthy of Red Smith. When I got through grinding, I felt as if I had written for an English as a second language class. When Texas stunned USC in the 2006 Rose Bowl, basically considered the greatest game of my professional career, I went into utter panic. I sat for two hours before I began a third paragraph. I was 45 years old, completing my 25th year as a sports writer. That story took me forever. And years went by before I could bring myself to read it again. It wasn't as bad as, a, as I feared, but thinking about it triggered PTSD. I think everybody, every sports writer in America will be happy to know <laughs> that you had these moments of, do you still get this? Does that still happen every now and then where you're like, I got nothing? Uh it does, but I know how to fake it now. And two reasons I'm better at it. One was realizing I could trust my own opinion, you know, to write a story. And that really didn't happen, Jeff, till about eight, 10 years ago, where I felt like rather than feel compelled to tell you everything so that I don't have to decide what was the most important, I'm just going to pick a couple of things from this game and pin my story on them. And that took me being, you know, trusting my own voice. And the other part of it was Max dying because I, I don't take the games as seriously as I used to. You know, I don't sit down at a Texas USC game and think, oh, my God, this is too big for me. I'm like, 
It's a game. Find something you like, write a story, send it and go. And, and, you know, on the one hand, maybe I don't have that same sense of enjoyment I have as a, just a college football geek, but on the other hand, that's, you know, I have more perspective. So I think it's a good trade-off. I had a few weeks ago, I had the singer Richard Marks on this podcast and we were talking about caring about music as much in his whatever fifties now as he did when he was 25 and hungry and coming up and you've covered college football for a long time. Now the games certainly have to get repetitive to a certain degree. The age gap between the people you're covering and yourself grows bigger and bigger every year, just because we're getting older. Is it as easy to care and to get psyched up for blank versus blank sitting here in 2021 as it was 1991? No, but it's easier for me to write a story, you know, um, and I think that's perspective, you know, knowing that uh, holding it at arm's length rather than being right up on it. You know, I, I find I'm less reverential, certainly of the coaches who are my age or younger at this point. Uh, and the kids, I just treat as if they are my my kids age, although my youngest is now 24. And, you know, and I walk in and just try to make them laugh or say something smart ass just to get them to relax and then talk to them the way I talk to my, my, my girls, you know, their friends. And, and that seems to work. And I, at the end of the day, there's still young people that are on their way up and they're not the, they're not American gods quite yet. They're still trying to figure out how to put their life together. And, and I think you only learn that when you get to be our age. Has your perspective or your approach changed more with coaches who you're no longer intimidated by or players who you're old enough to be a young grandfather of, which is adjusted more in your approach? That's a good question. I, I think, I don't know that I could delineate it. You know, I, I, I mean, look, I'm older than most of the coaches at this point. I'm 61 and, you know, coaching is a young man's business. And, and you can look at the numbers and once college football coaches get to age 60, they either get out or they, you know, they begin to slide, you know, which is what makes Nick Saban just another way of saying, oh, my God, he, you know, he just may be the best ever. The only thing that intimidates me now about talking to coaches is, is the work it takes to get in to see them because they're so busy and their windows to, to talk to them are so, are so small and to be able to get in there to do it. You know, that's the part that intimidates me, them as people, you know, I, I think they're just people. And, and, and I think you have to have done this for long enough and been around them long enough to be able to have that feeling. Well, I had a moment the other day that I thought for me, it was a proud moment for me the other day. I, um, one of my books I wrote is becoming like a, a TV series and I was on a lot. Right. And um, yeah, it's cool. And Sally Field was there and she has a, a role in this show. And I saw her. And I said, Sally Field. And she said, yes. And I said, hey, my name is Jeff Perot. And I wrote the book that this is based on. I just want to introduce myself. I'm so happy you're in it, blah, blah, blah. And we had this chat about her dog. There's no way 10 years ago I would have been, hey, Sally Field. Like just zero, zero percent yeah. chance. Would have, my hands would have been sweaty. And I would have debated whether to go up. And I wouldn't have gone up. And I kicked myself later. Was there a moment in your career where you became, hey, Sally Field, where you just had no fear, no trepidation anymore about approaching blank people. I have a lot less. And, and I think part of that is Max, you know, and like, 
you know, I just kind of say to myself, well, what are they going to do? I, you, know, or, you know, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen here? You know, I, I, I say that to myself a lot now. You know, what's the worst thing that could happen? Well, it's not as bad as that. You know, it's not as bad as what I went through. So go ahead and do it. Um, you know, there are there are a few things I still get squealy, you know, Beatles in the 60s thing about, but uh, they're not in, they're not in our field. You know, it, it, it's, there's no coaches. I feel that way. You know, it would be if I met like, you know, I was at a West Virginia game a few years ago and Oliver Luck was the AD and, and I know I'm Oliver is a friend and I, I went over to his box, you know, to, to say hello at halftime and Brad Paisley walked by me coming out of Oliver's box. And I could, you know, I like, Oh my God. Oh my God. You know, and, and then, you know, Oliver's like, I said, you know, if that was Brad Paisley, he said, yeah, he's in my box. Do you want to meet him? Oh, my God, really? Could, could I meet him? <laughs> so, you know, that sort of thing is a thrill for me. But, you know, there's not anybody in sports that I would feel that way about. What I'm required to ask on this podcast, it's a it's a departure from the main topic here. But um, I ask every guest, what is the most angry a source, a subject has ever been at you? Oh, 1987, I had just left SI the first time and I was covering golf at the Orlando Sentinel. And I did a profile of Paul Azinger, who was an Orlando guy. And he thought he was off the record and I thought he was on the record. And I wrote some pretty incendiary things that he said. And uh, he's... I, you know, he's pissed him. He's pissed at me 34 years later. He's still pissed at me. He led his autobiography off with the anecdote of the interview of uh, what happened because of what, uh, you know, what I published in that story. And it was, it was just a misunderstanding, but you know, we haven't gone to dinner yet. I'll put it that way. If you were, if you were in the Oliver Luck press box at West Virginia and Paul Eisinger is there, do you, uh, do you say hi to him? I would look at him, you know, I've, I've seen him in the masters press building Uh, a couple of years ago. I went down and uh, just went through it during the tournament. I wasn't covering it, but I got in to see it and he was in there and, and our eyes connected, but you know, I didn't go over there and, you know, and he didn't come to me. I mean, I see like, I guess kind of lastly, um, this whole experience, the grief, the reflection, blah, blah, et cetera, et cetera. How does that change a person long-term? Like how, if I look at you now and I look at you pre-2015, how would you say that has sort of changed you as a, as a writer and as a, as a human? Well, I think I would say what I said at the top, you know, I'm, I'm more, I'm a more empathetic person. I'm a more empathetic writer. Uh, I'm more mature. You know, I've gone through it. You know, I have the scars of life, uh, that I didn't have prior to February 2015. And one another thing that propelled me to keep going, Jeff, was just the thought that I'm not the first person this has happened to, you know. And people would come up to me and people I knew and had known for years and tell me something horrific that had happened to them in the past, either a suicide of a loved one or, or a murder or, you know, some other form of, you know, illness and death. And these were people that I, to my you know, untrained eye, unknowledgeable eye, I thought were perfectly 
you know, quote, normal, whatever that is. You know, my father's father died when he was 10 years old. My father lived a you know, full life with a great deal of sadness. And that's that's kind of what what I'm trying to do. Well, Ivan, it's it's I mean, it's it's, it's just a great it's a great book. Like I, I was looking for the word because it's not you know, it's it's not a joyful book and it's a really hard read. And I'm sure it's a million times harder to write. But I I just think you did a real service uh, to Max more than anything. And I feel like well, thank you. I got to know your son who I never knew. And I, I feel like well, that, that means a lot. And it was not hard to write. It's just what my life is. And, uh, and in that sense, it, you know, it wasn't hard to write at all. Right. Well, you did it very well. So um, thanks for doing this. I, I appreciate it. My pleasure. I want to thank today's guest, Ivan Mazel, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Ivan on Twitter at Ivan underscore Mazel. Read his work on on3.com and purchase I Keep Trying to Catch His Eye, a memoir of loss, grief, and love, wherever books are sold. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and leaving a nice review. I make no money for doing this. I just depend on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.